This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I am Jethro Jones coming to you from Spokane, Washington. I am the host of the podcast Transformative Principle and the author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in the ever-quiet Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cybertraps for the Young, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, cyber safety, and today, cybersecurity. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. It is with pleasure that we announce that the Cyber Traps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyber Ethics, an independent, nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics as a positive social force through research, curricular development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. To learn more, visit centerforcyberethics.org and please consider donating at the button on the upper right hand corner. Yes, we do like those donations. So, <laughs> yes, we know. do. So, hey there, Jethro, how are you? Doing great. So good to see you today. It is a pleasure to be here. We've got a great guest today. This is Dmitry Nemirovsky, and he holds a BBA and MBA degrees from Baruch College and earned his JD from Brooklyn Law School. Prior to co-founding Atacama, Dmitry spent 15 years practicing regulatory and enforcement law, most recently at Bingham McCutcheon, where he represented large financial institutions in high-stakes matters. He's been enamored by computer science since an early age, having taken his first coding class in eighth grade. And throughout his professional career, he has always focused on technology, including during the early dot-com era and more recently with Bitcoin and blockchain. 
It was his infatuation with the distributed nature of blockchain technology that led to the founding of Atacama. So, Dimitri, welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. Super glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, uh, welcome, Dimitri. Yeah, this is going to be a great conversation. And why don't you first start out by telling us a little bit about what Atacama is so that we can get an understanding of what it is you do on a regular basis? So we are a software company that is focused uniquely on information security. And the first product that we brought to market is a decentralized encryption solution that really uh, flips on its head the current model when it comes to how companies and individuals use encryption to protect sensitive information. So we are um, a startup. We've been around for about four years and um, we develop really cool, unique software. Yeah. So tell us how it flips it on its head. So if you think about encryption and encryption algorithms, they're pretty darn good at what they're designed for, which is to prevent an unauthorized third party from accessing anything that you've encrypted. So the algorithms are airtight. The problem is really the UX UI of encryption. Uh, For a regular layperson, they don't want to know what encryption is. And they certainly don't want to know how encryption works within a network or a system or their laptop computer. But encryption is with us daily, whether we know it or not. It's mostly behind the scenes. So everyone listening on this particular podcast, when you popped open your computer today and you entered your username and password, what you effectively did was decrypt the contents of the hard drive on your computer. And that's pretty cool, right? Because what you don't want happening is misplacing your computer, leaving it behind somewhere and having a bad guy be able to rip up, rip open and and take out the hard drive and be able to access the contents of everything that's on there. Um, And by virtue of the fact that your computer is in fact encrypted, that hard drive is encrypted and the contents are protected, right? So from that standpoint, really cool, right? Because things are happening behind the scenes. You as the user don't really need to think about anything. You're pretty much covered. And that's great up to a point. But when you think of organizations, companies, large and small, most often they're using servers, whether they're on-prem or in the cloud. And as easy as encryption has been made by virtue of connecting encryption to identity and access management controls, user credentials, it's really diminished the power of encryption. And here's why. If an adversary is able to compromise a user's credentials, that adversary now is able to access everything that the authorized user has access to because wholesale, everything is available to that authorized user the minute they put in their username and password, even if you're using a 2FA or an SSO solution. So what we did, and we were inspired by the blockchain, although this has nothing to do with blockchain, we, we, we said to ourselves, can we solve encryption in a way that remains simple to the end user, but from a security standpoint, does not fail from the same issues around identity and access management control. So without a comma, we are by design untethered from those identity and access management controls. And one of the security guarantees that our software offers is that when an adversary is able to compromise a user's credentials, anything encrypted by Atacama will remain encrypted. And I can go a little bit into some of how the technology works without getting too bogged down in the encryption. 
But in a nutshell, it looks and feels very much like a two-factor solution, where when you go to open up an out of common encrypted file, you receive a pop-up notification on your phone, you tap a big green button, and you're opening the file. And what's happening behind the scenes is you're sending back a piece of a decryption key to allow that file to decrypt. Yeah. Is, if I may, uh, Dimitri, this, this sounds reminiscent of a backup service that I used for a period of time called Carbonite, which mm -hmm. did an encryption when it backed up to their servers. I had the key for getting access to it, but there was no way for them to see anything that they were storing. So is that in the same general ballpark of what you guys are doing? It's in the same general ballpark, but you had one key, whereas without a comma, it's one key per file. So if you think of a, a you know, the ability to, you know, crack a key, that's like, you know, thousands of, you know, I'm not going to say it's impossible, but it's incredibly difficult. And we're utilizing AES-256, which is a standard NIST-based, you know, military-grade encryption algorithm. But when Atacama encrypts something, it encrypts each file with its own unique key and then cuts that key into shards and distributes mm -hmm. those shards across physical devices controlled by the user. And as complex as the cryptography is on the back end, the UX UI is purposely simple to the end user. So if, have you found, can, I'm can, sorry, Jack, go just ahead. Just a clarifying question. If you then, uh, it, if you made an analogy, it'd be like going to a filing cabinet and traditionally you'd be able to pick the lock and open up the filing cabinet. You'd have a new lock on every single file in that filing cabinet. Is that? <laughs> That's <right>? exactly right. <laughs> Absolutely right. And, and while potentially, you know, theoretically, you could pick each of those locks, you know what? The attacker doesn't really want to do that, right? The attacker just wants to pick that one lock and get everything. Yeah, well, and that's that's the cool thing here because what what you're then talking about is if you had to go find a different key for every one of those, it would be cumbersome and difficult, and that's why nobody does it because if you have to password protect every single one, then it's a major pain. And what you're talking about is the need to have each of those files securely encrypted, but not make it so cumbersome that you have to know a million different passwords or something like that. So, um, so that can you expound on that with the difference between cybersecurity, which is making sure nobody penetrates your network to information security, which means it sounds like basically each one of those files is protected. Am I getting that That's right? right? Yep, that's exactly right. And that, you know, the analogy I like to use is the castle, just because it's so simple, right? And if you think of cybersecurity as um, protecting the castle, so you have these deep moats, these really tall fences, uh, these thick walls, you have the guards up there. And the goal of that perimeter, the goal of that castle is to prevent the attacker from gaining access within your environment, within your perimeter, right? But a successful cybersecurity program by definition, has to assume that the adversary will eventually make their way in, if not already in the environment. And that's where information security and products like Atacama come into play. Because with Atacama, we protect the crown jewels within that castle, right? And we do it with each crown jewel having its own, you know, safe and lock and chains, et cetera, um, such that when the adversaries, when the attackers make their way through those, the, the deep moats, the thick walls, the tall fences, the guards, they're unable to effectively and successfully grab those crown jewels and run away. 
I actually had a chance to visit the Tower of London. So this is a directly relevant metaphor to me. And when, you know, if you look at that structure, I think you're exactly right. Obviously, they had tremendous resources devoted to preventing intrusion. And then what you're talking about is quite literally each jewel, each crown, each scepter having its own security for that item. My question, I think, that immediately comes to mind is, um, have you experienced any pushback from consumers in terms of the friction that this imposes in terms of usage? The answer is yes. There's an initial, if you will, shock factor. And it's not too dissimilar to what um, I would say the multi-factor guys like the duos and the octas of the world experienced maybe 15, 20 years ago. Um, when they, you know, were really espousing and promoting the fact that, hey, it's not sufficient to just rely on one device. One device can be secure. But if you're only relying on the security of that one device as a system, it's not overly secure. Once you add a secondary device, that secondary factor, you've exponentially, not 2x, you've exponentially increased the overall security of the system. And so while initially I would say there's some you know, pushback, my first question is, well, are you using 2FA? Oh, yeah. Okay. So you're already using that user experience, right? And we are literally writing the coattails of those multi-factor guys because they've done a darn good job conditioning uh, users to use their phone when they're interacting with their computer and systems. So we purposely designed it that way to make it look and feel very much like that multi-factor. And obviously, we've thrown in some performance uh, hacks so that you, you know, you as the administrator don't have to require your users to have to tap approve for every single file. You can launch a session window and effectively tell your phone, hey, for the next uh, eight hours and 100 files, don't ask the user to tap approve, just release those key shards as the user wants to access their files. So this brings up the question to me of at what point does that type of security become necessary. So a lot of the, you know, I'm a former principal. A lot of the people we talk to are in education. And so securing student data sounds like a good place for that to happen, but what other use cases make it worthwhile? And, you know, when, especially with something like Google docs, which is, you know, so many people use it and that is really mostly security by obfuscation because a lot of people just share that publicly because it's easier to just send a link than to share the document if you don't know somebody's email address or whatever, or sometimes yeah. there's issues. So at what point does it become necessary to start taking this information security seriously? Yeah. So let's start with the, the individual consumer, right? Um, we offer a solution for individual consumers. And I have this conversation you know, regularly with friends, family. Uh, a lot of people are apathetic when it comes to this question. Oh, no one's interested in my stuff. I'm not an interesting target. And that's the furthest from the truth. First of all, speaking of Google, Google can read all your GDoc files, right? And anything in your G drive, just assume Google's reading it. Um, same thing with your emails. And that's why you're getting that advertisement uh, and that ping. You're kind of questioning, hey, how does Google know that I'm looking at X, Y, and Z? Um, but ultimately, every individual has something that is sensitive to them whether it may be uh, tax returns, photos, um, you know, something that they're working on that is their master plan, whatever the case may be, individuals, we as individuals 
um, should not be apathetic to that question. We should, in fact, be very rigid when it comes to our personal information because it is ours. And there are mechanisms to secure it um, that you know are not overly complex like ours, right? So that's the individual, right? So we're talking about personally identifiable information. Your example with the, you know, uh, with education, absolutely. You know, not only are we talking about something, for example, in the bursar's office that has to do with an individual's finances, their, um, their, their, their personal records, their personally identifiable information, their health records that you need to submit, right? All of that should be secured. Um, so, and now move into, you know, more regulated uh, entities like banks and insurance companies, right? And if you think of financial data, Right. Those 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 folks are, you know, incredible targets for attacks. Law firms, which are sitting on you can I mean, any I mean, litigation files, forget about it. Right. We're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of um, records, you know, of a personally identifiable nature. So, um, you know, and then you look at companies uh, that are um, biotech, as an example, <laughs> those guys are being attacked not by you know some hacker those guys are being attacked by rogue nation states right so so dimitri i i think that what is worth discussing is that the perimeter security approach to cybersecurity is predicated on the information staying inside the perimeter and it seems to me that what your solution is really specifically addressing is the fact that we live in a mobile world and laptops get lost with drug enforcement information and veterans records and legal records, as you point out. So in those circumstances, yes, you can encrypt the hard drive, but that's simply a tighter perimeter compared to securing the individual information files on those devices. That's 100% correct. And, and, and it's been the, the problem really has been amplified by virtue of the fact that now we're all remote, right? And so if I'm a security practitioner and I, yeah. up, up until, you know, the first quarter of 2020, I kind of had a lockdown. I knew exactly what was going on. I knew exactly where things were. All of a sudden, thousands of endpoints all over the place. And now I'm tasked with making sure that the network is secure, the VPNs, the connections, you know, uh, the, the IT support. Like, think of all those new attack surfaces that have been created because now remote is the new norm, right? So all of these, you know, um, um, factors and all of these concerns are just, you know, are, are way more intense. And for a security practitioner, those guys, you know, talk about a thankless job. Uh, those guys are, you know, undervalued. They are underpaid, underutilized. Um, they, you know, they, they don't have the right teams, right? They, they, they try to get budget. And it's a, their risk is asymmetrical, right? No one's patting them on the back and saying, "Hey, you've gone 332 days without a hack. Good job." You know, it's like when the you know proverbial HIT hits the fan. That's when they're called to task, and they have to explain why certain things didn't happen. And then he, he basically pulls out you know his request and requisition forms and says, "Remember when I asked you for additional you know budget so that I can do X, Y, and Z, and you told me no." Well, this is the result. I told you so. Well, and the other thing that happened is with the uh, with everybody going remote, we reduced our security capability significantly to make it easy for people to still interact. And 
you know, people aren't thinking very much about that, but well, I think some people are, but probably people who listen to this are, so I'm not talking to you, <laughs> but you know, that, that made it a lot easier for other people to have access because you had thousands of endpoints now. And you also had a relaxation of security, which is, which is certainly an issue. Now, I, the, the next thing that I'm curious about is how the reason why we don't do this is we want things to be easy. Um, but you've, you've, you've essentially solved that problem by, by making it very easy for somebody to get in. Um, what are the other barriers that we face with increasing our information security as a whole? What are the things that are preventing us from being smart about it? A lot, a lot of it, you know, um, has to do with, um, uh, you know, um, the friction, right. And, what what are the priorities, right? So it's it's very difficult. There's always this balancing act, right, between productivity on the one hand and security on the other. And the, usually the formula is the more secure you make something, the less productive it tends to be, right? Um, and to figure out that balance and to try to get it in a position where you're comfortable with both the productivity aspect and the security side of things, it's a very difficult, you know, balancing act. But um, you know, the technology exists to get there. And a lot of it has to do with conditioning the workforce, conditioning the users, uh, because people, you know, they, they don't have a lot of patience for these things, right? You get frustrated very quickly. Um, you know, think of something as simple as trying to log into a bank account and, you know, you get that pop-up that says, oh, you need to reset your password. And you're like, oh, darn and then it takes you about 18 minutes to figure out a password that has the requisite number of, you know, alphanumeric with the, and, and it's frustrating, right? Now they're doing it for your benefit, seemingly. I mean, part of it is then their exposure, but. <laughs> well, and their liability, right? Their liability, <laughs> but, you know. But, you know, ultimately they are trying to, you know, help you ensure that your, you know, finances are secure, right? So. But, you know, but yeah, I get frustrated, you know, and, and it's a real life example from yesterday, right? I had to send a wire and there were like multiple times where I had to take out that goofy little token, enter the token, reauthenticate myself, um, you know, and, and again, that's just part of, um, you know, what reality has become, right? And it used to be that, you know, uh, you could just enter a silly password with, you know, four digits and that was sufficient. Fast forward to today, you know, that has evolved to multi-factor in these tokens, whether it's a soft token on your phone or an actual hard token and the resetting of the password and, you know, re-authenticating and seeing an IP address. Is this you? Verify that it's you because you logged in from a different machine or a different, uh, you know, room of your house. You know, it's kind of scary, but that's the reality. <laughs> it absolutely is. So, Dimitri, look, it seems to me that in this calculus that we're all going through on a daily basis you know, with respect to cybersecurity and information security, that part of the issue is the value that people put on the information in question, right? So, you know, there's no question that if people are concerned about their bank account or their tax records or the nuclear codes and the football, people want there to be a reasonable level of security and they're going to put up with more frustration to get access to that information information. But I think one of the things that people still need to educate themselves about is the extent to which seemingly innocuous information can be misused 
if someone gets a hold of it, uh, you know, if for no other reason than to figure out what your passwords are. Mm -hmm. So yesterday, good example, um, Twitch was hacked, right? And, and I think, you know, people woke up this morning and realized Twitch is now open source, whether they, you know, wanted to be open source or not. That was them. <laughs> I would say we, were, we decided to be open source. Uh, but that that great, attack, great corporate decision. <laughs> right? We decided we're open source. You know? We're going to create a new community around this. Um, but look at the information that was hacked, right? And and look at uh, you know what almost instantly was made public, right? Uh, it was things like, oh, look at the the users who are getting paid most, right? Uh, it was just like, oh my god! It was like, oh my god! Look at this! Look at these numbers! They're off the charts. Um, who, who suffers there, right? Who really cares about that information? Is, is it a, you know, a sense of pride for some? Is it a real concern for others? Is the IRS looking at that information now, right? Um, it, it's different for everyone, right? And, and everyone has a, you know, um, I, I don't want to say sort of uh, an innate desire to keep certain information uh, confidential, if you will, but there, it's, it's different for everyone depending on the context, right? So for, for me, for example, you know, um, I, I kind of like, I have a lot of, you know, kids photos and I'm thinking to myself, I don't want anyone out there to be able to hack my kids photos and be able to access those. Whereas other people freely post that stuff on Facebook, right? So for what's important to someone from a privacy standpoint, maybe the complete opposite for somebody else. I have right. a couple of books about that. I actually well, have very strong opinions on those yeah, topics. <laughs> I do too. But therein lies the, the rub, right? It's like you you have a strongly held opinion and there's, you know, an equal number of people out there who have a complete different, you know, divergence sure. from, from where, where your opinion is. So it really is circumstantial. And I really believe that individuals who give their own personal privacy short shrift will suffer in some, it's just a matter of when. Right. Because, again, we live in a world where we are connected globally in some way or another. And um, if you don't take measures into your own hands and rely on the Googles of the world and the Apple and the Microsoft and just assume that, hey, they got me covered because, uh, you know, they have this multi-factor thing, you're, you could not be any more wrong. Dimitri, I guess this will lead beautifully into the next question. So my observation in response to what you're saying, which is I think exactly right, is that when we were not connected, your vulnerability for private information really lay in your family and your friends and maybe some neighbors, right? So it was a, a relatively small pool of potentially bad actors, most of whom you knew, so you could right. develop some trust factor. But as we have gone online and as we have connected ourselves globally, I think our sense of safety has failed to keep track with the size of the pool of bad actors, which is just enormous, merely on a numbers game. If we've got eight and a half billion people on the planet, you know, do the math, do a bell curve and, you know, the bottom act, yeah. end of bad actors is still a big number. So the question is, you know, is there anything we can really do to effectively clean up the cybersecurity mess? You know, obviously, Atacama is one approach, but have we just gone past a tipping point? No, I don't think so. I think it's incumbent on the individual 
to be aware, right? So if you think of awareness and what they're doing, right, whether it's something as potentially innocuous as posting something on Facebook to participating in these platforms, right? And look, the technology companies get it. The easier you make the platform, going back to that friction uh, question, right? Those platforms are completely frictionless. My kids, they're not on Facebook because from an early age, they were on uh, you know, uh, the gram, they were, uh, you know, the, the, the Snapchat and now TikTok, right? And the kids are adopting the, and this is the norm for them. This is how they communicate. They don't pick up a phone and talk to people. They don't know what a phone is, a landline. It's silly and it looks silly. What are you talking about? You have to hold this thing here, right? And, and it's awareness, right? And it's perspective. So my perspective is different from my kids' perspective. And some of their social existence being online is a norm for them. Whereas for me, no, I'm not posting anything online because that's private and personal to me. And so I think, you know, understanding A, A, what the platform is, B, the scope of that platform, right? By doing whatever it is I'm doing on this platform, what are the potential pitfalls that I'm not thinking about? Right? So if you, you, you're posting on Facebook and you, you have sufficient information out there, a sophisticated attacker can piece that together to know something as simple as, oh, you're on vacation. Great. Perfect time to rob your house, you know, to actually cobbling together pieces of information and then trying to commit some kind of identity fraud. Right. So it's really we have to be judicious about the information that we're sharing and we have to be ultra conservative. And I mean that in every sense of the word, ultra conservative when it comes to our information and safeguard it. Don't don't be apathetic about it. Don't just assume that Apple and Google and Microsoft are going to have your best interests in mind. They do not. Well, you bring up another interesting point that I think is a great place to kind of wrap up our discussion today. And that is the idea of trust. And all of this comes down to trusting. And I, I don't think it's appropriate to put all of your trust in just one place. I don't think it's appropriate to trust any new startup that comes along. And so how do normal everyday people make the decision about what to trust and how much to trust it? What's your perspective on that, Dimitri? Yeah, that's, it's, you know, I like that question a lot because um, I'm of the opinion, you know, trust, but verify Um, in almost every aspect of what I touch. I try to, you know, I try to be trusting by, by my nature, but I try to verify as well. So the good news is, you know, there are tons of platforms out there. If you're looking for a new solution or you're trying to solve something, there are tons of boards out there where people have already, you know, tested something, took a first spin and read those opinions, see how other people are using it. And to the extent you can find tools where there's no central authority, where you're not relying on the company itself, where you're not, you know, um, entering information in such a way that makes you feel uncomfortable, where you can actually take control and own the information or the product somehow. That's what I would look for, right? Um, and so as convenient, for example, as Google Docs is and the ability for people, you know, thousands of miles away to simultaneously be able to edit a, a file, it's, it's amazing, right? But at the end of the day, what does that amazing platform, you know, what are you putting at risk? So what information is in that document, are, are you concerned by it? You know, maybe it doesn't make sense to open up that Google Doc. Maybe it makes sense to open up a Microsoft Doc, password protected, and then send it to that person 8,000 miles away, 
right? So we need to be judicious about these things and think about the big, you know, long-term implications of our digital presence. Fred, you're muted. It's amateur hour over here. <laughs> See, <laughs> sorry, I was I was protecting you from the ambulances, so uh, that one's on me. Um, but Dimitri, let me let me close up with one small observation. Uh, when I was working on cyber traps for expecting moms and dads, you know, I got into this idea of friction and protecting children online and their identities and so forth because. You know, one of my concerns is the size of digital footprints for little kids and how that becomes a permanent part of their their existence. And so I was suggesting to people pretty much along the lines of what you're saying is that if you want to send photos to grandma, instead of using Facebook, fill up a thumb drive and drop it in the mail and send it to her you know, with a nice little card that explains how to use it. And it just reduces the public exposure of that child, which I think is a huge piece of this. So I'm going to touch our toe into a massively complicated topic, but I'm, I'd love to get your 30-second response to the cat and mouse game that exists between security companies like you and people who are trying to break security tools. And it seems like the flavor of the month with respect to that is quantum computing. Do you see that on the threat horizon for the kind of information security you do? Yeah. So the minute quantum computing becomes a thing, the bad guys are absolutely going to use it to break encryption. Now, that being said, and by the way, uh, if you asked me that question six months ago, I would say that quantum computing was probably a decade out. Uh, I have since changed <laughs> my opinion on that. And I think that that timeline is probably closer to five years. And here's why. There are certain, again, rogue nation states out there that are devoting an immense amount of resources to getting quantum computing up and running. Right. And their goal is to do bad. Okay. Now, that being said, as soon as quantum computing becomes a thing, we, on the good side, will re-up the encryption algorithm to stay ahead of the quantum computing ability to break the current existing algorithm. So right now we're using AES-256. We can up that to 512, 1028, mm -hmm. right? If you guys sure. remember, Commodore 64 right. was great. 128 was better. Now, you know, I mean, you're always keeping up with things, but... Um, at the end well, of the Dimitri, I'm old enough to go back to 1200 baud and 2400 baud was better. <laughs> and that's that's basically it. So it's always, you know, you're right. It always is a cat and mouse game. Um, recently, I read a stat where uh, folks in the, in, in the, in the cybercrime space, it's more profitable than selling drugs and nowhere near as risky from both a legal and a, sure. you know, um, I mean, gang standpoint, right? You're not, not, you know, there's no rival, you know, cyber gangs out there killing each other, not that I'm aware of. But at the end of the day, it's here to stay. It's easy for them. It's so easy, right? Um, and they're making money doing it. That wraps up this episode of the Cyber Traps podcast. In the coming weeks, we'll continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, science fiction, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we will talk to a growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and rewards of digital technology. 
You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you will share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have topic suggestions or guest suggestions. We'd love to hear from you. If you would like to reach out to us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have loved this interview. If that's the case, please leave us a five-star rating and review. And we look forward to seeing you on Monday for our live show. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master's schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.